Luke's account may be my favorite of the gospel accounts of the birth of Christ, just to see the wonder and the glory that, that surrounded the event, the angels praising, the shepherds praising, measure, Mary treasuring all those things in her heart and pondering them and glorifying the Lord. I think it was last Christmas, actually, that we looked at that very text on um, Christmas Day, on, on that Lord's Day. But this week, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah is right in the middle of your Bible, and we will be in what is probably a kind of familiar passage to you, Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, and we're going to consider today the child who reigns, the child who reigns. And before we dive into this text, I just want to say it is such a joy week in and week out to gather together with the Lord's people and to sit under the authority of his word. But it is a special joy, I think, to, to be able to do so today on Christmas Eve. You know, we've reached kind of the, the peak and pinnacle of the Christmas season, and what else would we rather be doing than, than gathering together with the Lord's people to worship and to study our Savior, Jesus Christ? The wonder of the incarnation is something that we should not, never tire of hearing. We should always be, be found to glory in the fact that our Savior took on flesh and came to the earth that he had created only to the end that he might die on a cross and bear the curse of our sin. The, the wonder of God's plan of redemption should never be something that we become bored with or become dull of hearing. Isaiah chapter 9 paints a unique picture of the Lord's story of redemption. We see the sin that had encompassed the Lord's people. We see this promise of the coming Savior Christ comes, and then we see the reigning Savior. So we see the humility, the humiliation of Christ in his incarnation, but we also see his glory, that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father on high forevermore. Isaiah's prophecy, just to kind of to set up the text a little bit, it was written in difficult and dark days in the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. The people of the Lord had divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, because they couldn't get along. They were given to sin. They had followed into sin. They had joined themselves with the pagans around them, and the Lord was giving a prophecy through Isaiah of how he would punish them for their sin, for their paganism, for their idolatry. And so they were dealing with the doom and the anguish that was caused by their sin. And that's where chapter 9 picks up. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, if you will, and if you are able, I'd invite you to stand with me as we read Holy Scripture. This is God's Word. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it's given to us for our instruction, reproof, and to train us in righteousness. God's word said, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. 
You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts for the glory of his name. You may be seated. Would you join me now and let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and we want to pause and ascribe to you all honor and glory and praise. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand exactly what it means to give you all honor and glory and praise because you are worthy. You're exalted in the heavens, king above all kings, lord above all lords, the sovereign ruler of all creation. Lord, you have no need for man to come to you. You have no need to glorify yourself by redeeming a sinful people. And yet in your kindness, in your grace, and in your love, you send your son to die for us. Christ took on flesh. And bore the awful weight of our sin on the cross. Not only did he take our sin, but in taking our sin, he gave us his righteousness. Lord, help us to understand the glory and the wonder of the cross. Help us to understand the glorious work that you have completed in redemption. Lord, you saved us, as your word says, to the praise of the glory of your grace. May that be the result of our lives, Lord, as we live and as we walk, and as we strive and toil and labor. Would all that we do be to the end of your glorious grace being made known to the ends of the earth? Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that we would have humble and eager hearts. Lord, I pray that our minds would be actively engaged in the truth. I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. And I pray that you would open our hearts to receive and apply your word. Lord, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, your means of doing all of this is the active, present, and powerful working of the Holy Spirit. 
our prayer and our desires that your Holy Spirit would move in power among your people today. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would bless the words that are spoken. I pray that your Spirit would bless the truth, bless our hearts to receive it and apply it. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be distracted with all the plans that we may have over the next few days. It's so easy to to let our minds wander. And I pray that you would help us to focus just in this short period on the glorious truth of your word, the glorious work of Christ, our great need for salvation, and the hopeful promises that you have made and that we have realized through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the incarnation. Thank you that Jesus came as a baby, that he learned perfect obedience. He walked in perfect obedience, even to the point of death on a cross. We praise the one who is now highly exalted, who's been given the name above all names. We pray that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that we will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, I thank you that you hear our prayers. We pray that you would receive them and that you would answer them in the power of the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Ultimately, through this portion of Isaiah's prophecy, the Lord reveals to us the hopeful promise of the coming Messiah. The people were going to be under judgment and discipline. That's the doom and the anguish that we read about in chapter 9, verse 1. They're going to face the Lord's corrective discipline because they had sinned. And the Lord tells that they will be captured, they will be enslaved by the Assyrian Empire, but they will be delivered. But beloved, far greater than the hope of a physical deliverance, what the text shows us is that we have a great deliverer from the power and the penalty, and one day, God be praised, from the presence of sin. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. These days of captivity in Judah and in Israel were going to be dark and difficult days. The Lord offers the encouragement that the light will come. The Messiah will come to and for his people. And this is the great hope to which we hold today. Thousands of years after Isaiah's prophecy, we hold to the same hope that was made known through the prophet. Whether it's the darkness of sin or perhaps the weight of sorrow, and we face both in this life, dear saints, we fix our eyes upon the Christ child. But he's not just a child, he's a king who reigns. And the hours and days and seasons of darkness Lift your gaze to Christ and consider his redemption. Consider the hope that you have in him. 
we know, dear friends, that the Lord will accomplish whatever He so chooses in this present earth. Some are, are going to have different opinions on exactly what is entailed here in, in the reign of Christ. Your eschatology, what you think about the end times, may affect a little bit of how you interpret some of these promises. But what we know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that one day Christ will reign supremely over the new heaven and the new earth. All of this will be done away with. Christ will return. He will call us to himself in glory. And dear friend, you will rule and reign with the Messiah. That is the perfect eternal hope and home of every saint. The light of Christ must shine in our hearts. The light and the joy and the peace of Christ must fill our hearts and our lives during the Christmas season, yes, and sure. But year-round, dear friend, we are filled with the joy and the peace that only Christ can give. And that really is the the overall purpose, the overall goal of our time together today. We want to see that the reign of Christ produces peace and joy for all who are called out of the world and who come to him as the light of life. The reign of Christ produces life, hope, joy, and peace for all who are called out of darkness and who come to him as the light of life. Now, the text really climaxes, obviously, in verses 6 and 7, where we see the reign of Christ. But before we get that, we're going to see the doom of sin and the promise of hope. It's kind of like when we share the gospel with somebody. Oftentimes, we, we, we need to start with the bad news. We need to see the difficulty and the doom of sin, and then we hear the promise of hope, and then we see the glories that come in salvation. So let's begin at verse 1, the doom of of sin, the doom of sin. Isaiah writes, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So what we have here is some of the backstory about the promise of the coming Messiah. We'll get to the why in a moment, but let's think about the what. Why are these people treated with contempt by and from the Lord? Why are these lands, why did the Lord call out the Jewish people and then treat them with, with this utter disregard, this punishment, and this discipline? Well, from Isaiah 6, we know that Isaiah was writing sometime in or shortly after the death of King Uzziah. That happened in 739 B.C. And Isaiah was writing, at least in part, uh, of the near-term future of Israel, the punishment that would come to them shortly. So if you put Isaiah somewhere in that 739 B.C. time frame, it was about six or seven years later that Assyria would invade Judah. Assyria would invade the people of God. We see that in 2 Kings verse 15. And where did Assyria strike first? It's the lands of Naphtali and the land of Zebulon. In God's providential plan, it was these people, because of their sin, 
who were the first to fall, the first to be carried away by the Assyrian Empire into captivity. As MacArthur notes, this was the beginning of dark days for Israel, dark days for God's people. The Assyrians were oppressive, they were cruel, and the Jewish people would receive terrible treatment during this period. 2 Kings 15 verse 19 tells about this invasion, just to put it before us. It says, the king of Assyria came and he captured Ijon, and Abel, Beth, Makah, and Genoa, and Kadesh, and Hazor, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali. And he carried them captive to Assyria. So that is what faced the people. You know, this was in the future from when Isaiah wrote, but this was the punishment of the Lord that they would face. Isaiah 1-7 kind of shows us a picture of the state of their lands maybe leading up to this and, and certainly during and after this captivity. Isaiah writes on behalf of the Lord, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. So how did the Lord treat them with contempt? He punished them justly for their sin by allowing them to be captive, taken captive by an evil empire, dragged out of their homeland and have their homeland overrun. But more important than the how, friends, is the why. Why did the Lord allow this? Well, you probably know some of the history of Israel, and really, if you know just generally the history of God's people, you can probably understand what was going on in these days. They were given over to sin. Ever since the days of the exodus from Egypt, they just were back and forth in, in this, this game of polluting themselves with the surrounding pagan nations. The Lord would command them not to. They would go into sin. They would be punished. The Lord would then deliver them. They would promise to the Lord that whatever you command, we will do and we will obey. And then a few years later, a generation later, they're right back into their sin. Isaiah 1.4 says that they were a sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, a people who act corruptly and have abandoned the Lord. That's a serious, serious statement from the Holy Lord God Almighty. The Lord summarized at the end of Isaiah 1.4, he said, They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they have turned away from him. So we ask the question, why did the Lord treat his own people with contempt? Simply because they were contemptible. They had polluted themselves. They had played the harlot. They had seen all of God's grace and mercy and provision and forgiveness and kindness. And yet over and over and over again, they were back into sin time and again. Dear friend, how much is that like your life? How much is that like my life? That the Lord is kind and gracious and forgiving, and, and yet you might be five years into walking with the Lord, you might be 50 years into walking with the Lord, but you still battle against sin and flesh. But his kindness is everlasting. His mercy will always come upon us. But in an act of corrective discipline, the Lord causes 
and allows his people to be carried away captive because of their sin. Let that remind us, church. Let that remind us that we need to be pure in life and in worship, individually and collectively, corporately. We need to pursue purity because the Lord acts decisively when his people profane his name. The Lord acts decisively when we profane his worship, when we join the worship of God with the worship of pagan idolatry. Such is so common in our day, but we don't have time to talk about it all this Lord's day. So we press forward. What are the effects of this sin? Before we press on into the rest of the text, what marks these people who are weighed down with sin? It's right there in verse 1. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Sin caused darkness, sorrow, misery, difficulty, constant distress. Such is still the effects of sin today. If you give yourself to walking in sin against the Lord's command, you, if you are his child, will feel the same doom and despair, and you will face difficulty because he will chasten the child that he loves. He will not allow you to go on recklessly in sin if you belong to him. The Lord is always just. When in his providence, he allows you to face discipline and correction and punishment for sin. He doesn't always allow it to go as far as we might see with the Jewish people. But he's always just in whatever he does. We ought never test or try the Lord's patience and grace. Dear friends, we should have hearts that rejoice in the grace that we receive. We should have hearts that overflow with gratitude because he is faithful to forgive our sins if we confess them. But as Jesus said to Satan in the wilderness, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, you should never put the Lord your God to the test. You should always be quick to repent and turn from your sin. When you do, you ought to trust in his offer of great unending grace. But as we think about the people and what they suffered, I want to highlight James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This tells us how we should respond to our own sin. James said, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. That ought to be your response to sin. Weeping, mourning, your laughter and your joy turn to sadness and gloom. Then you repent, and then that sadness is turned to joy because you know and experience the forgiveness of the Lord. And that's a challenge, I think, in relationships. We should seek and see and press for this type of sorrow over sin in one another. But as one who is a great sinner, 
and one who is looking at a room full of great sinners, we understand and, and we need to understand one another, we won't always see sorrow as we might think we should see it from another person. That sorrow must be present because sin leads to brokenness. Brokenness leads to repentance. But it may not always be there as we think it should, but we ought always press one another to understand the weight and the depth and the ugliness of sin. So we need to understand the doom of sin. Sin's weight should rest heavily upon us. This is quite the Christmas message, I suppose. Sin's weight should rest heavily upon you until you run to Christ for grace, until you come to him for forgiveness. We ought to mourn over our sin, but then you rest and rejoice in the one who bore that sin's penalty on Calvary's cross. So be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your joy and your laughter be turned to gloom and, and sorrow. But if you confess your sin, he's faithful just to cleanse you of your sin and, and to forgive you for all unrighteousness. So the doom of sin, and then we see the promise of hope in, in verses 2 through 5. The promise of hope. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. The Lord will multiply the nation. He will increase their gladness. He will break the yoke of their burden and the staff that's on their shoulder and they will see the peace that is pictured in verse 5 when all the garments and all the instruments of war are burned in the fire because peace has come. This is the promise of hope. The Lord's people will face his discipline. But at the end of verse 1 he says, but later on he shall make the land glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Turn back to, or turn forward to Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, because you may hear that and you may wonder, what is Isaiah prophesying? What is he speaking of? And Matthew actually references directly to this. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. This is when Jesus begins his public ministry. Matthew 4, verse 12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody... He withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this was to fill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in the shadow of death upon them a light dawned. Don't miss verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what's going on here? How will the Lord bless these people? It's from these people, from this land, that Jesus would begin his public ministry. These cities were contemptible. They were besieged by pagans, and yet from them the Messiah comes, not in his birth, but in his beginning proclamation. He stands forth and he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The glorious kindness and blessing of 
God. If this is not God's grace on display, I don't know what is. These people who were so sinful, they had to be carried off by pagans. The Lord now shines his glorious light of the gospel to them. So they walk through difficult providence, but then upon them shine God's grace. And I was reminded this week, thinking about this, the hymn from William Cooper, several centuries old. It's called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. In one of the verses, it says, Judge not the Lord in feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides his shining, smiling face. In difficulty, in challenging, hard providence. Trust the Lord for his grace. These people had even brought upon themselves God's difficult providence. Yet he gave and displayed a wonderful grace to them. So Isaiah gives then a series of hopeful promises. And we're just kind of going to glance and run through these a little bit to consider the, the hopeful promise of the coming Messiah. Think about these people in this day. They're told that they're going to be driven and taken away in captivity. But then Isaiah gives this hope. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In John eight twelve, Jesus said, I am the light the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These people are groping and feeling their way through darkness. And the Lord says, I will shine the glorious gospel light of Jesus upon you. From this darkened people, the true light of life will come. You have to ask yourself, how did that light come? Think again, a highlighted verse 17 of Matthew 4. Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The light shined at the proclamation of the gospel. The preaching of the truth. In John chapter 1, John contrast the the differences between John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. In John 1 9 he, he had said that John the Baptist wasn't the light but then he says but there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. That is the light that shined on the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. That's the light that shines upon us today. It's the light of Christ which enlightens us to our need for a savior. And the fact that if we come to him in repentance and faith, we have the promise of new life. Sometimes as we walk in this life, the battle for joy is difficult. The battle to see the light of Christ is difficult. Dear friend, you must, I think it's Piper that I've heard talk about this before, you must fight for that joy. You must fight to get to that point where you see joy and you have peace and you see and you know and you walk in the light of the glory of Christ. You can't remain in the darkness and the doom of sin. 
You can't allow yourself to remain in the despair and the darkness of sorrow. You go to war each and every day by the power of the Spirit. You walk and you strive and you labor and you know that one day you'll put off the flesh. You'll put off the body of this death. You'll be made alive eternally with Christ. You promise that the great light will come. Verse 3 says, You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. In their sin, Israel and Judah, the Jewish people, God's people, they did anything but flourish. They did anything but multiply both in number or in their gladness. As they were carried away, surely their numbers dwindled and decreased. But in the days of Christ and surely in his return, there will be this great multiplication of the saints. Because one day there will be but one kingdom. It will be the kingdom of Christ where all the people there are the redeemed. And our joy and our gladness will be great. God's people flourish. Just to think about that for a second. God's people flourish when the truth is taught, when the gospel is proclaimed, and when we orient and live our lives in light of the truth and the gospel. So we see in Judah and Israel, in God's people, we see that they obviously decreased. They suffered. There was hardship. But they will one day multiply because they live and walk in and respond to the truth. We one day will multiply and increase because we live and we walk perfectly in the truth. Dear friends, I would encourage you to sow seeds that produce that type of harvest. You see the differences, right, between the, the pagan idolatry formerly of God's people and the, and the increase of his people one day in the future. The difference is the people walking in Christ and in the truth. Isaiah says their joy and their gladness will increase. The presence of the Lord will make them glad the nearness of God is our good. It's our joy. Matthew Henry is one of my favorite commentators. He said, the gospel, when it comes in its light and power, it brings joy along with it. He said, it's a great and a holy joy that the gospel brings. But he continued on, and this is where it gets really good. The gospel brings with it plenty and victory. But those that would have the joy of the gospel must expect to go through a hard work, like the farmer before he has the joy of the harvest. They have to expect to go through a hard conflict as the soldier who faces the battle before he's ready and able to receive and, and have the joy of dividing the spoil. Henry concluded that the joy, when it comes, it will be an abundant recompense for the toil. The joy of the Lord, when you know the joy of the fullness of the gospel, that is when you go to be with Christ in heaven, 
all that joy will be worth every labor, every difficulty, every sacrifice. The joy of heaven will be worth everything that you can give. Verse 4, he says, You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their, on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. The promise of hope. They will be oppressed. They will be captive. The Lord will break the rod. He will break the staff of their oppressor. He will free them. But so far greater than that, he will break the oppressive power of sin. You think about just the physical suffering uh, of Judah. It reminds you of Psalm 30, verse 5. The anger of the Lord is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. People surely experience that just in the earthly realm. But how much greater do we experience that in the spiritual realm? Romans 6, Paul said that sin once reigned. It, it held us captive. It, it clung to us. We had to do the desires of our master until we were transferred to the kingdom of light. Paul writes there, But thanks be to God that through, though you were slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's the promise of hope in Isaiah 9, verse 4. You will one day no longer be a slave of sin, but you will be a slave of righteousness. You experience that today in part. But one day you will know it in full when you don't battle that sin any longer. The Lord reminds, I think, very hopefully, very expectantly for us that this is going to be a crushing victory over sin. He says, the, He will break the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. It seems like it points back to Judges chapter 7, verse 25. This was in the days of Gideon. The people of God were fighting, and it says in Judges 7, 25, they captured the two leaders of Midian, which is referenced in Isaiah. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they pursued Midian. A crushing, decisive victory. That is our victory over sin. It's crushing, and it is decisive. But let us remember, dear friend, dear saints, let us remember that sin was a slave master over us. And Satan will not give up easily. Once you are transferred from Satan's power to the kingdom of Christ, that is a final transfer. You will have final victory. The Lord will lose none that are his. But you will fight and battle and war against sin all of your days. And with that in mind, we need to patiently labor with, alongside of, and in favor of one another as we try to fight against this old grip of sin. But don't let that understanding cause us to be slack about fighting sin. We need to expect and pursue and experience increasing victory over sin. 
you as a follower of Christ, one who is in him, who has his spirit in you, should experience increasing victory over sin. Increasing righteousness marks God's people. Verse 5 says that every boot of the warrior in the battle and every cloak that is rolled in blood will be for burning. It'll be fuel for the fire. That seems to be a picture, I think as I mentioned maybe earlier, of, of the end of a battle. When, when one army defeats the other, they take all of the battle supplies, the boots, the clothes, everything from their enemies that they don't need, and they burn it. And then comes a time of peace. This is the promise of hope that one day there comes a time of peace when the battle is over. So we have the doom of sin. It's gloom, anguish, and captivity for God's people. And we have the promise of hope. But how does the Lord accomplish all of this? That's where we come to verse 6 and 7. The doom of sin, the promise of hope, and the reign of Christ. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. He will be on the throne of David over his kingdom. It will be established and upheld with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Hope you see the sermon title in full view now. The child who reigns. It's what makes this a Christmas message. Because it's a child who is born, a son who is given. You have no cause, you have no reason for hope but for Christmas. Because Christ came. He had to be in the form of a man. He had to be fully man in order to become our head. He had to be fully man to replace the fall of Adam. That is why we have hope. That is why we celebrate Christmas. Because he was at the same time a baby, and yet the king of kings tried to explain this to my children last night and failed utterly and decided it was time just to move on and go to sleep. But that's what we think about. He's a baby lying in a manger, utterly helpless in human terms, but at that same time, eternally, he remains God. King of kings, the Lord of lords, never lays aside his glory or his power. Isaiah describes him, he says, a child will be born and a son will be given. When you think about the son that is given, that ought to take your mind to a very familiar verse. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life that is the joy of the christ child that he was given to redeem us so i don't want to leave too much on the table i want to just take a few minutes now to kind of skim over 
some of this glorious reign of Christ that Isaiah shows us. Beginning, he gives these four titles. He says he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and the Prince of Peace. He's the Wonderful Counselor. He reigns in powerful, holy, infinite wisdom. Think about the kings of Isaiah's day. Whether it's the rulers of God's people, and certainly the rulers of all of these pagan nations around them, they ruled in anything but power and wisdom. Jesus, the king, reigns in perfect wisdom. Wonderful, in this case, signifies a miraculous, powerful rule. He will accomplish all that he desires. It is a powerful wisdom, a providential wisdom that operates under the the guiding sphere and power of God's sovereignty. None of his plans can be thwarted. So he is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. So this is not miracles then when we consider mighty because we just talked about his miraculous power as the wonderful counselor. Mighty is a heroic warlike, wartime headship and leadership. The Reformation Study Bible comments here, as a warrior, God protects his people. This attribute of divine power is ascribed to the coming king. This is important to understand Christ as the mighty God because Jesus would die seemingly from man's perspective. He would die utterly helpless the hands of evil men, yet he is the mighty God who reigns forever. And even in his death, he made war against sin and against the power of darkness. He remained and ever will be our heroic war king. He leads us into battle, and this king will always be victorious. You have to ask yourself, how does this king train us, his warriors, for battle? Two primary places. Maybe Luke would say three. The two primary places, the church and the home. The church and the home. That is how the Lord prepares to send workers and warriors to fight his battle. May we be faithful in both, in the church and in the home, to prepare ourselves and certainly to prepare the next generation and brothers and sisters around us. May we be faithful to ready ourselves to fight in Christ's army. He's a wonderful counselor. He's mighty God. And he is the eternal father. Now, this is not some type of modalism. This does not show Jesus as son at one moment and God at another and spirit at another because that's heretical and it that would not allow for the Trinity, which is a biblical concept and idea. What this refers to is Jesus as the father and the head of his people. So, so father is referring to his headship over his people. So not only does his kingdom remain forever, but he remains the head of his people forever. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and he's the prince of peace. 
Think about that. Mighty God and Prince of Peace. The, the warrior king and the Prince of Peace. Don't you look forward to that day when, when we'll always know Christ as the mighty God, as this great king, this great warrior. But don't you look forward to the day when, when you can know him more intimately as the Prince of Peace. And you walk into that perfect, eternal, unending peace. Think about, again, what the Jews experienced in this day. Just war after war, evil ruler after evil ruler. And the Lord, through the prophet, one day you will know and you will have and you will serve the prince of peace. How does he bring about eternal peace? Because all things are placed in submission to his feet. Beneath his feet. Christ will rule with a holy iron fist. And everything will submit to him. He will tread underfoot all who fight against his kingdom. And beloved, you will look forward to that holy iron fisted reign. If you live your life today according to the holy book. You won't long for his holy rule if your life is marked and marred by sin. But if your heart is submitted to him, your life is submitted to him, and you follow his eternal rule and rules, you will long for that reign. The government will rest on his shoulders. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. He will rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom, and he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. What did Jesus tell his disciples? All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The government will one day perfectly rest upon Christ's shoulders. Dear friends, this is a glorious hope that we strive toward. A mighty reign by an unmatched an unrivaled king. But how does the Lord accomplish it? Look at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of Yahweh of armies. The great purpose of the great Lord over all is to establish the eternal kingdom of Christ. And the Lord will accomplish this through his zeal. What is the Lord zealous for? He is zealous and jealous for his glory. This will be a kingdom that glorifies the Lord. And if we desire his glory, we should long and labor toward this kingdom. This is an army in which we fight. And we ought to battle joyfully and with all of our might and with all of our strength. We follow Christ in his wonderful, infinite wisdom. Dear friend, the wisdom of God sometimes brings you to hardship and suffering and difficulty. But he's the wonderful counselor. Because in every situation, he's accomplishing the purposes that he needs to work together to bring about the eternal reign of Christ. Be a warrior in the army 
of Christ. Joyfully go to war with this king. We see the cost and the hardship that sin brings. And it's way beyond the physical suffering of Israel. It's an eternal condemnation and an eternal doom if you don't come to this Savior in repentance. Those who walk with the Lord, those who come to Him in faith, these are promises of hope, promises of peace, promises of joy for a future, for forgiveness, and for eternal life. All these promises, all of this hope, begins with Christmas, with the child who was born, with the son who was given. May we consider the Christ child of Christmas. May we understand that he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, and may he be our prince of peace. We must give him the attention and the honor, and the glory that he is due. As we're at Christmas at this point, my prayer and my heart for all of us is that we understand the importance of having Christ as the great focus, not just in these two days, but in all of our lives. Y'all have heard me, I'm sure, quote the Puritans before. What did they say? All of life to the glory of God. All of life should be focused on this great work of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ child who would go to the cross to bear our curse. He would be raised from the grave on the third day, and then he ascended back to glory where he ever lives and intercedes on our behalf. Dear friend, if you are here, you are a sinner. If you're here and a sinner and you've not repented of your sins and come to Christ in faith and repentance, you stand under God's condemnation. Come to him in faith. Throw yourself upon his grace that you might be made alive in Christ. By grace we've been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that none of us may boast. May that grace of God mark our lives. May we joyfully worship Christ, the King of kings. Let's pray.